Welcome to Building the Base, a unique discussion focused on shaping our future national security industrial base during this pivotal time in our nation's history. For over 40 years, the nonprofit organization Business Executives for National Security, or BENS for short, has brought senior executives and best business practices from across our country together to address our nation's most pressing security challenges. The BENS mission is more important now than ever before. BENS is embarking on a historic project, gathering the best ideas and minds together to define the future industrial base that the United States will need to remain secure and prosperous for our future. And now you have the chance to be a part of it. It's a daunting task, a task the United States has not had to do at this scale since World War II. But it's also a historic opportunity, an opportunity to leverage new technologies, new business models, new ideas, and new voices to improve our country for the decades to come. Hear from top entrepreneurs and leaders from high tech, financial, industrial, and public sectors as they share their ideas and perspectives about how we can all work better together to ensure our national security and prosperity. We are excited to have you here with us. Here to begin today's episode, your hosts, longtime Benz member and leader of the Benz Technology and Innovation Council, Lauren Vadula, and former chief weapons buyer and innovator for special operators, sailors, and Marines, and now Benz distinguished fellow, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Um, we're really on a roll here. I'm Lauren Bedula, and I'm here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz, and very excited to have with us today Kirsten Bartok-Tau, who is really just an impressive investor and executive in aerospace, defense, and space. And so interested in, in hearing Kirsten's perspective on a lot of the issues that we've discussed so far and really why we launched this podcast. Yeah, awesome. Good to have you here, Kirsten. Excited to be here. So, uh, so a lot of us in, uh, in the industry know you, but I would say not everybody out here in the audience knows you. And, and what we like to always start out with kind of, what's your story? How'd you get here? We were kibitzing a little on the start of uh, growing up in certain places. So what, what brought you from uh, living in Maine here to being kind of uh, one of the leaders in, in aviation finance and now in venture capital and, and now helping the Defense Department? I'll probably give away my age by telling you how long that story is. But it, it, it interesting probably starts in D.C. and maybe ends in D.C., which is interesting. So uh, I am from Maine, proud Mainer, love Maine. Uh, I always say whether you're left or right in Maine doesn't really matter. Everyone's kind of in the middle, agrees, and, and I always like that place. Uh, so I kind of uh, started in politics uh, early on, was a page here, worked on the Hill a bunch of years, and then realized, which was appreciated. I always tell people to start things off young and early. I didn't want to do politics. I wasn't a politi politician. I was really someone who liked to get things done. So if you're a person who liked to get things done, what do you do? And, and what does it seem like? You follow, follow some trends. Where do people go? So that time I was at um, the University of Pennsylvania. It's a big time on Wall Street. Everyone was going there. And I said, you know, like a lot of us said, that's that sounds interesting. Let me go give that a try. Ended up getting a job at Goldman Sachs and loved it. And the interesting part is I really liked the global and macro nature of what we were doing. Um, I'd been a political scientist, um, undergrad in economics, and it really combined the two sections, both worked in investment banking and capital markets and got to do a lot of global work with governments. And at that time, you could see it's funny how you're young and you don't have the context, but I was working with a lot of uh, governments who were buying uh, uh, Freddie, May and Fannie Mae, um, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae bonds, 
because they needed more yield in treasuries. At that time, you didn't understand the context of why everyone was buying reserve and reserve currencies and how important essential that was to national securities. We'll get back to today, but it did. So after Goldman went to business school, uh, went out west to Stanford, caught the bug, I think, on technology and really said at that point, this is even cooler. This is what's going to change the world. Um, I don't think we had, I can also say I came from a time where we were doing dial up and it just barely, I started work before we had the internet, before we had email, which is always embarrassing to say. But you go out to California and it's just like everyone is, they can make it happen. They can make it happen at a young age. There's an absolute utter belief in being able to accomplish it. And you don't have, there aren't um, barriers or impediments in your way. And I think once you see your peers starting to do amazing things at young ages, you feel confident that you can do the same sort of thing. So I immediately kind of dived into technology. And my first job out of business school was a venture capitalist at a firm called Hamilton Quist at that time. The three horsemen, the young investment banks who were really doing all the technology deals. And we had a, um, a technology fund focused on internet, software, telecommunications. And it was a great time to be there. I will, the heyday of what it was back in 99, 2000. But then like today, we also witnessed a crash and kind of everyone pulled away. So I uh, stayed in investing, continued that for a while. And but one of the other lures about Silicon Valley, which I think will resonate to you guys, is that people are doers. And sometimes people who invest money, I don't say in a negative word, we can say a derogatory word. So I want to say parasites, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they are an important part of the cycle, but they aren't necessarily the doers. And there is a true drive and respect out there to go and do things and run things. So I had the opportunity through uh, the fund I was working at to go work at a company in aerospace and defense. And I think Hondo's heard me say this before. I didn't know a piston from a turbine at the time. And we, uh, We'd gone in and invested in this company. It was a part 135 and part 145. So it was a maintenance, charter, facility, a dealer. And I was a business person. I always go, okay, boys, back, focus on the numbers because the numbers is all that matters. And in the end, it did uh, because you can't run a business if you're just running through cash flow and you're not making money. But I also, you know, I also soon became a believer in that side of the world. And that, that small change would kind of direct the rest of my career and where it was going. And I always say that, kind of bring this full circle is that I always, I view myself as the intersection between technology, Silicon Valley, aerospace, and defense. You know, I, so we built this company called Exojet, which was a charter company, a really innovative kind of business jet airline. We ended up selling it to TPG. I left there, ended up working for a company called Hawker Beechcraft, which had uh, trainers for the military at that point and a business line of business jets, worked there for a couple of years, traveling the world, uh, worked with China, really broke us into Asia, spent a lot of time there actually. Interesting. And this will be another intro, which will be trying to sell ourselves to AVIC and uh, Kayega. So that was a real learning session of how to do JVs over there. And, um, and then we go later, um, but the entrepreneurial side came back to me. So I then started up a company called Air Finance, which was basically bringing the commercial aerospace financing kind of thought process of asset finance to the business jet space. And while there, you, you always kind of bring these different parts of your world, started to see the change in aerospace going on. We were having um, autonomy, AI, machine learning, electrification was coming in, electric vehicles, new innovative sources of fuel, climate tech. And watch that starting to, to weep into aerospace. And all my friends, and, and these companies were starting up and they really weren't at that time filled with, they were more Silicon Valley people than aerospace and defense folks. And I became one of those people that could connect both worlds. So I started actively investing in the sector and um, then brought in 
really my airspace to help trying to bridge that gap between those two worlds because you needed the Silicon Valley guys to bring ideas and innovation, but they also need to be grounded in reality. We all understand certification and how the world gets regulated and, and what you need to roll out. That wasn't going to change. So that kind of fast forward brings me today. I still do a lot of work on the financing side. We now um, do a venture capital arm, uh, which Hondo is involved with, which is uh, called New Vista Capital. I partnered with Travis Nelson and Dennis Muhlenberg and a bunch of other amazing executives, Honda being one of them. Uh, and we formed a team basically to go out after emerging technologies in aerospace and defense, both on the venture side and the SPAC side. So uh, I was talking to, we have a new intern like you guys do. And I was joking with him, like, you're going to love this just as much as because we have a passion. We have a mission. It's really cool. Like, we truly believe we're at the beginning of an, a precipice of the next 20 years that are going to look revolutionarily different, both on the defense side and the aerospace. And, and we get to be mission driven. We're doing important things for our country and the world. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, it, you talk about passion and, and doers and mission, and that's something that has just really been a, a theme in all of our conversations to date. But something that I, I find so compelling that you talk about is connecting different worlds, right? And there are so many um, companies that are trying to figure out how do I, whether it's Silicon Valley or different innovation hubs, but really from the high tech sector, how do I connect with this community in the defense world, which culturally can be so different? And um, trying to navigate that issue, I think, is top of mind for more and more companies nowadays. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you, what's your outlook on the connectivity between these two communities? Is it possible for them to work together? Or would love to hear your thoughts. Well, a good note, it's growing. Um, I remember sitting down three or four years ago, and we were I was based in Silicon Valley at the time before moving to D.C., and we were talking about how do you know? Are there how do we get aligned? Are there possibilities that the government will buy some of the stuff? And and you're out there and you just have no idea. It seems like this huge morass, this enigma. And then we had the opportunity to relocate here a couple of years ago, and you realize that it works exactly like Silicon Valley does. In fact, it's about relationships and connectivity and understanding each other and knowing how to work, not work, but how to maneuver within a structure and a system. And that is why we all are students of structures and systems, but it is important to kind of connect those two organizations. And and I see it growing. You know, I love the fact that I'm seeing more and more of our, um, our country's service men and women come out and want to do technology and they're using their skill sets. And unlike years ago, they believe they can start up a new company and they can be entrepreneurs. And you see on the other side that they are valued by kind of the Silicon Valley people who've grown up because they, they the Silicon Valley people, at least on a good part, they understand their limitations. They say, we don't understand DC. We don't know how to work with it. Please help us. So they both of those groups need each other and exciting to, to we're just at the beginning of, I think, how that is going to evolve and grow. That's awesome. So we, we talked a little bit about interns. And so uh, I'm going to do an intern crazy Ivan on you. And I asked the interns here with us today, you know, hey, here's this amazing person, amazing background. What what question would you ask her? And, and the consensus was um, you've been very successful at failing. And how have you become as a venture capitalist? You've got to be comfortable that not everything's going to work out exactly like you planned and you don't have a 20 year exact path and, and things will fail and we'll have us, you know, a dot-com crash or whatever. How have you kind of mentally and then, you know, systematically gotten comfortable with failure as a, as a core part of the, the business process? It's a great question, Hondo. And culturally, you know, 
I can, I can step outside of that because I grew up on the East Coast. People on the East Coast are not okay with failure. Like you go from one job to the next and you can't have a break. People on the West Coast are like, failure's a part of it. You're going to learn. You're going to be better for it. We hope you don't have to go through it, but it is part of the process. And it's also part of the process to take a break. Like these are marathons. You're sprinting in that marathon. So you should take a break and you will make better decisions if you are period on the beach, which, you know, the consultants call it. So I think that that is, it is cultural. I was reading something that I came across from business school that said, can entrepreneurship be learned? And I, I do believe that is the case. I think inherently some people are more risk prone and, and risk adverse. But on the other hand, I learned how to be risky. I learned how to be and enjoy that, that adrenaline and be okay with it. I'll also say, and one of my first bosses taught me this, and it goes back to what I just said, is I was talking, it, as an investor, and certainly in venture and private equity, one of the things you learn is it's a painful experience, but how things fail. So when you do documents, when you, when you negotiate things, when you have all these terms that you put in a document for a venture round, you will only understand why those are important when you go through a failure of a company. And that's an important part of anyone learning. So I want people, if, if I hope I open 10, 5 to 10 years, people on the East Coast respect failure more because it is part of the process. Lastly, I do encourage people to start at a big firm. I think culture matters a lot. And that, um, and sometimes I would say the first organization that you work for is always the place in which you'll feel safest and most comfortable, and you'll replicate that later in your life. And I do think that it, sometimes it's good to have some sort of organizational control, some structure to it for the first few years, let's say out of college, your first job. And then you can go to the more amorphous, less structured organization that startups are. Yeah, wow. That's, that's, that's a great perspective. I mean, it's, it's funny because in the DOD, we often talk about we need to be more risk-taking. But then a lot of folks look at the military and go, wow, all they do is risky things. And so, you know, getting this cultural alignment is really, really, uh, I think, an interesting uh, uh, opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a quote I just heard a few weeks ago. um, Success is a lousy teacher. And I think even just to your point about East Coast versus West Coast, this isn't just the U.S. government. There's almost just this divide, New York, D.C. Um, But I love that because the point is you really learn and grow from failures. Um, So wanted to pivot to the economic outlook. We're at this almost spooky time with growing inflation. Um, Curious for your take in what's to come, um, both in terms of the financial marketplaces, but also how will this impact DOD's ability to do business with startups who will be very sensitive of burn rates and time to market? It's a great question. I'll take the two parts. Mm -hmm. We had a a slight debate about this internally, and I I, I do believe it's going to be a long, tough year and a half or two on the startup side. And I don't say that in terms of this is the debate. Nothing fundamentally has changed. Technology is still going to grow. I, we all still absolutely believe in um, the direct, uh, let's say, the rate of acceleration and the direction. But valuations got out of hand and people got a little ahead of their skis in terms of um, what they were asking for. And in the future, why that matters is because the people who are investing do have to make money. So if you're investing at a very high valuation and you can't find an ability to exit at a much higher, valuations are going to come down and people are going to get more cautious. Um, And they're also going to recognize that it's, it's going to weed out some kind, while we do have a lot of money going into new startups, they are going to be more cautious about who they invest in and how those companies break out from what they're competing against. So not so it'll be harder to raise capital. Um, 
I believe that the DOD is going to become more and a more important part of the ecosystem. And it is a part of the ecosystem. And I think this war in Ukraine and the way we're seeing governments lean in and the importance of these new technologies and how warfare uh, is being fought is is instrumental in in leading that. You know, let's just go, if we go to the non-kinetic or long, let's talk about Earth observation. And we've been talking for years about how important the commercial side of Earth observation was going to be. And now we're seeing its usage in directing people, resources, um, intelligence, reconnaissance. It, it has changed modern warfare and how we conduct things. Nothing can be done in secret anymore. And as SAR gets more prevalent, as hyperspectral, as we're able to use other things be, beyond optical, you know, and the, those analytics, I mean, to some extent, I get a little worried because it's going to be like, you're not going to be able to hide. You're going to be able to track us everywhere. But on the other sense, it, it is changing how modern warfare will be fought. And then you get the second part to the drone, the light attack, the things that you can lose, the 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 low-cost drones that you're not afraid of using in warfare or gaining intelligence on. And and so what we're showing is that we need to evolve faster in a greater pace and rapidity. And to your point earlier, not being afraid of losing those. So Hondo, you and I have talked a lot about the acquisition process and the pace at which that occurs. And you, know, you put in, and I'm always going to use the wrong word, uh, the RFQ out, and it's got you know, um, it's got requirements that were extremely five years out, but then they change and we modernize, and we need to work at a faster pace, the pace of business, and I think that is going to be essential. But if you just look last part budgets, I mean, I think I read today we're now going to two trillion dollars of of government of DoD spending in the U.S. You know, you saw the German government come out with a hundred billion, and I mean, these are really. Um, consequential and monumental changes, and they are going to impact. I love it, though, because when I started out, we never talked about the partnership between Silicon Valley and it being of national security and national importance, and also being strategic about what industries. We were a globalized world back then. We said, oh, you'll be able to get resources here and there, and they'll never be, you know, and and history repeats itself, because this is actually what they were talking about in 1917, right? I mean, that's the crazy part. It was a globalized world back, even back then. So, um, it is really important that we think about we all work together strategically and have a little bit more orientation about what are the industries that are important from a supply chain and an industrial base that we need to retain in, let's say, our, our hemisphere. Yeah, so, so I think that's a great you know, observation. And certainly Ukraine is showing this convergence of there's not commercial tech and DOD tech. There's just kind of tech. And then, you know, you've got these different use cases, Um, but it still feels like we think of the industrial base in World War II terms. I mean, even, you know, even within the DOD, but certainly, and you've got a unique position with a foot in, in all the camps. Fast forward 20 or 30 years, if we have it right and we figure out how to better align together, what does that look like to you? What, what would you, how would you know it's different than where we are today? Well, I think, it, as we all know, because we read the same things, we're, we're concerned about the consolidation. We think about the world in a cost plus. That's how um, the contracting has historically gone in acquisitions. We've had big programs that we want to create. And I think going forward, it'll be more market-based and iterative. And hopefully we'll have a large number of, of organizations and companies that support that industrial base. I also firmly believe that we will be in a more siloed world, which is unfortunate, Um in terms of, I don't like that, but it, it probably is a reality. And by that, we really need to, we really need to align and work in coordination with the nations close to us because 
because of EPA rules or certain things, we may not be able to do everything we need to do in the U.S., but we have close friends to our north, close friends to our south, and there are better ways where we can create a supply chain and work together leveraging our both natural resources, because that's the other part. We forget about how, you know, we talk about the industrial bases, the manufacturing, the supply chain on that. We also forget about the natural resources that go into it well, as well. And, and we've neglected that size, which is side, which is causing us problems today. Mm-hmm. You work with lots of companies, sit on lots of boards or invest in, in them. I'm curious if, if you think that new reality is something that is generally on the minds of business leaders or how aware are they of, of that shift? I think it's a question of which business leaders, right? So I um, if we think about the old world kind of industrial supply, military industrial complex of the, the Lockheeds, the Raytheons, the Boeings, I, I think there's a recognition that the game is changing and they need to keep up. And it'll be an interesting question of whether they can adapt and adjust. Um, I think as you talk about the, co- the collaboration on the startup side, um, I love I get the collaboration between the, the startup guys, startup people, as well as the, the service men and women who come in. And that collaboration is going well. The question will be, and we've talked about this a lot, is are we going to be able to feed these companies enough? And by feed, I mean give them contracts and give them um, programs of record that are going to enable them to grow beyond the small $200 million, $300 million company. We both know that we have a couple of, we have multiple unicorns in our space, but let's say the amount where their revenues are today don't always justify where that is. So we need to grow, we need them to grow into those valuations and really build up that middleware. So we won't just have huge companies in this military industrial complex, that we have a robust ecosystem of small to medium size and large companies feeding that and competing on a level playing field. That's a, that's really good perspective. And I, and I think one of the keys, if I look out 20, 30 years from now, is do we have that balanced right? And do we have this robust um, network of performers, not only in the U.S., but, but other places? I, I want to turn a little bit, you know, you and I have had a chance to work together. And there's two traits about you I absolutely love. And it's this really interesting mix of being both humble and assertive. And, and we laugh often because we'll get in a conversation and then I'll say, OK, dumb guy finance question, Kirsten, you know, and I'll have a junior high version of a, of a finance question. And I'll be right back at you. And then you she'll be right the, back at me with yeah. the, OK, I got a dumb guy defense question. What does this acronym mean? Yeah, and, is- yeah, yeah, I am the acronym dictionary. But 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 I think, you know, particularly as a female breaking through and what is, you know, startup, no small secret, you know, very male based, same in your aerospace. How have you. I said, balance those as you've gone through and know when to be humble and then know when to be assertive. And what's your perspective on that for kind of up and coming leaders who are looking for role models like you who have, uh, you know, made it where others haven't been able to break through? Great question. I, I, I wish I knew the answer. And I wish I could say I'd been successful. I think you don't always have the balance. Um, it's important to know what you know and know what you don't know. And, um, and I always find your board, as, as we've kind of found, of people you can ask if you don't know something and do research and, and don't be afraid of that. I think the tough part is, you know, when you're younger, you're 26, and we always had this problem coming out of business school, you don't, you're always embarrassed to ask. You're always afraid to say, I don't know that. So I think once you can develop a competency and an expertise in a certain area, and I had a, I had a niche competency. Mine was always kind of aircraft financing, globalization, 
you know, and then it fit into a lot of other areas as we talked about. But I was always able to, I didn't pretend I was an engineer. I didn't pretend I was a supply chain person. I didn't, you know, it wasn't us, but I knew this area. And then I could rest to some extent on those laurels um, and, and be okay with that. So it is, I think we all talk about the, the, growing older, there are a lot of benefits. One of them is you kind of become a little more comfortable with yourself and your skin and say, look, I'm smart enough to be here. And now I can, now I can ask those dumb questions because it's okay. And, and if you don't ask the dumb questions, you really won't understand the macro picture without some of the legs on the stool. Yeah. And I think an, an element of that is also not being afraid to break out of your tribe, right? Because generally, you know, if you're just in your same tribe, then then you won't know what you don't know. And then you can set yourself up for a big failure. How, how did you get comfortable, you know, going on the shop floor as the finance whiz uh, with a bunch of wrench turners that, you know, probably didn't understand where you were coming from? I think that's a natural curiosity. I mean, for me, it was always, I, you know, I hate to say this, I'm always bored with people like me. I mean, why do I, they're, you know, not that they're bad. They're, they're, you know, they're fine, but uh, you know, we our conversations are pretty linear, right? They're pretty boring. So it's always interesting to have a diverse group around that you can learn from. And and like you, I like people's stories. So there's always something to learn. So, you know, I'm always curious about how an aircraft made, how, how a turbine runs, how how things are built. So I'm never afraid of asking. And people, I think the other thing you realize early, people like being asked questions. They like being able to show their own competency. So typically people are happy to do that. And if you have a natural curiosity and inclination to understand what they're doing, that's all good. That's that's human nature, right? So, well, you've had such great success outside of the federal space. I'm curious what attracts you to defense and national security, and really, what has surprised you along those lines so far? That's a great question. Um, growing, I, I mentioned earlier that I'd been, um, I started, you know, in government really early on, and. I moved on because I was a doer and I like doing things, but there is a point where you're doing things for long enough and you're like, what's my, what's my mission? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going? And is it just to make more money? Yes. It's fun building companies. Yes. This is great. And I'm lucky I get to learn new things every day, but I think everyone appreciates having a mission and doing good and trying to give back. And, you know, I think the sad part for me comes is I'm on a, you know, I'm just about to hit the back half of my career, as I always say. And there, I don't have all the opportunities. I can't go work in government. I can't be a, a chief of staff to someone and learn everything I could in that position. So I'm kind of stuck. But what we can do is go and, and learn as much as possible and try to understand it and figure out what's going on. So for me, I, it also helps to have a passion to wake up every day in a mission and, understanding the the challenges that our nation faces going forward in terms of building this base and the changes we need to go through to get where we need to be to compete to continue in our leadership and to keep our edge there's a lot of work to be done and it's 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 important to have a mission to be able to wake up every day and have the energy to do that yeah one, one of the things i've learned from you is and the other uh, venture uh, folks in the community is how important people are. You, know, you sometimes I think there's this misnomer that people back technology. Most of the time, people back teams. They may have technology that helps them or a new idea that helps them. But I'm, I was, you know, having been on outside of government now, it's it's amazing how much the focus is on talent. And probably no surprise to anybody the talent wars going on, um, you know, both in the valley and and in DoD, but. 
But I think I'm starting to see a trend now of more and more folks getting interested in national security and and that. What's what's your sense of that? Are you seeing the same thing? And how and what do we need to do to keep attracting up and coming talent into the national security space? I think you're exactly right. And I think whether you're at the back end of your career or whatever the age you are, people want to have um, they want to be doing something larger than themselves. And there's a period, you know, if you're building, not that social networks or the social internet was, but people did feel, gosh, that's really cool that we built this, but is it making the world a better place? And you can justify that. But as you go back and you think about national security and the the dual use technologies that are both going to be important on the commercial side, as well as the the national security side, it, it does help. To, to spend, you know, as an entrepreneur, you spend 18 hours a day is often, you know, working these jobs. It's, it's a marathon. Um, so having the energy and the stamina to do that, it's, it's important to have a higher calling, which you guys have already known. I mean, you who've, who've given back to our company and service, you worked like that and weren't making the, the salaries that you were doing it for the good of our country. So I think that um, I, I am optimistic about these groups working together. And like I said earlier, I'm very, very excited about we're seeing the talent coming out of our armed forces right now and having an entrepreneurial bent to them and really working in in connection. We've got a lot of work to do. I hope, I love what I'm seeing around uh, around the D.C. area, the DMV, especially in Arlington and Tyson's, where we're really having these corridors built up for the, the future industrial base. And that's going to be important because ecosystems matter. People matter. And that knowledge of how to start up a company and what to do next, you're going to be better at if you've seen it done before and how the game is played. So so for the new, uh, you know, the veteran who served this, uh, she or he has served his time and, okay, I want to start in this venture world. I want to start a startup. What Do you have advice for them on, you know, how, again, with some humility, what, what have you seen work well with them and maybe not so well with, you know, veterans popping into this uh, into this part of the community? I think it some does matter on where where you are in that spectrum um, in terms of your position before leaving. But there's so many opportunities because, like we said, know what you know and know what you don't know. You, you want a mini MBA or the, the military vet wants a mini MBA in how to start a business, how to build this. And the the, the startup entrepreneur will wants a mini MBA in how do I access the government? How does this behemoth work? So the, the two can be leveraged. And if if you're a three-star or a four-star, you can be leveraged on the boards and advisory boards because they need that support. We need mentoring. You guys are amazing on leadership. You know, we all know Silicon Valley is not the best on leadership necessarily. So we can val- we can use that. And on the younger side, it's it's the structure, it's the organization, it's working together. So I'm very optimistic about the uh, the tentacles between the two groups becoming stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. You talk about these long days and have had so many intense career choices so far. And, and I'm always uh, amazed at how you seem to balance. Love hearing about your kids and your family. And I think balancing professional interests and goals with personal goals and, and families and the like um, seems to be near and dear to your heart. So I'm curious if you have any advice for our listeners who are trying to sort through similar choices. I, I think the first thing is whatever sex you are, have a supportive spouse. So um, that, that's incredibly important. Uh, my husband and I are really lucky. We balance each other off, you know, and, and, and our careers have gone in cycles. Um, I think the second part, funny enough, working remotely has been really valuable because even though I work really long days, my kids see me. 
they feel like they have access to me. I could, you know, go and do something. And, and that became really okay during COVID. And we realized that organizations could work together. I've always traveled a lot. Um, I, I encourage people probably not to have too many kids if you want to have it all. Because uh, you're never going to feel that you do a good job in anything. Uh, I don't. I feel like I fail a lot on both sides and there's never enough time in it each day. And I think a, a little learning that is is being okay with that, um, being able to laugh at it. Like I will laugh and I'll, I messed up on that with my kids or something or at work. I was like, I wish I joke with a couple of my friends who don't have kids. And I'm like, oh, do you remember those days where we could work all weekend? That was great. You know, <laughs> and it is true because half of your, what you're doing is learning, but you know, life goes in cycles and we're grateful for each. And I, I do hope I, you know, I think back every day about how lucky I am and the people who in our military have had to go on tours. And I, uh, I hope at some point we can provide more flexibility within our militaries to retain strong people internally, because, you know, I, I do have to admit, I don't think I could have gone on tour um, when my kids were young. So it would have been. Um, yeah, it's uh, well, it takes great support. Uh, support network there as well. Uh, another key element, I think, especially is your growing up through your career's mentorship and and how have you approached mentorship what you know lessons learned there and and particularly being comfortable getting mentoring support from folks again not just like you or look just like you or had the same background what 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 advice do you have both as a, you know as an up-and-coming in particular of how important that is I um I didn't do a great job at mentorship. That was definitely a mistake I made, and and I always had like a good kitchen cabinet of diverse people around me that I could ask questions to, like the relationship we have. But I didn't do a great job of going up, and I, I think that was a, possibly a level of insecurity I had because I was like, oh, they don't want to talk to me. They're so accomplished. They're they're amazing. Why would they want to spend time with me? And and I'd try and be helpful, but I, I didn't do a great job. And it's funny. It's only kind of being at the higher level now, understanding that's not true. Like there's a couple of people in my world who keep in great touch and they've got a tickler and they'll reach out every six months and they'll set a Zoom call and we'll do it. And we'll talk some about work and some about personal. And for me, I learned a ton from them because they're doing really cool things at the leading edge. And that is great for me because I don't always get that access. And I hope that I can impart upon them, you know, some of the mistakes you've made or, you know, things they could approach or differently. And, and we talk about all aspects. So um, that came too late in me, to me in life that the older people, the more senior people actually really enjoy it. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I hear the same thing. Oh, I was afraid to, you know, like there's nothing I love more than to talk about mentorship and leadership and all that. So if you're a, uh, if you're a young gun out there or anywhere you are in your career, don't be afraid to ask. And if somebody's busy, don't be offended. If they say I'm busy, I'll get back to you next month or something. But You'll never, you'll never have the opportunity if you never make the ask. And sometimes if they lose your email, totally understand that. Follow up again the next month because you're, you're not offending that they just, you know, sometimes email just goes to the bottom. So, Well, Kirsten, I know you've been a, a great mentor to me, and I know our listeners will really enjoy hearing about your story and perspectives from both the financial side and then DOD and broader aerospace. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today about um, how you can be a doer, but also focus on mission and connect different worlds and really accept risk as a learning opportunity. So thank you so much, Kirsten, for joining us today. You've been listening to Building the Base. 
a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.